Welcome to Scrum Dynamics. Hi everyone, this is Neil Benson and welcome to the Scrum Dynamics podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to help you use the Scrum framework to successfully implement Microsoft business applications because we believe that by using Scrum, you can cut costs, shrink timelines and mitigate risks while delivering business applications that everyone will love. How have you been? This is my first podcast since taking a break over the summer holidays here in Australia. Did you miss me? Because I certainly missed you. It feels like I haven't been on air for quite some time. I hope you're well and your 2020 is off to a roaring start. I took a few weeks off in December to spend the summer holidays with my family. We've been up to Noosa, a seaside resort here in Queensland, and spending lots of time together building Lego, of course. In fact, we've had to scale up our Lego storage system because our previous setup has run out of space. Things are getting pretty serious in our Lego studio. I've also been busy with my Dynamics 365 customer service project here in Brisbane. We're in the last stretch of a two-year project, so it's getting to the pointy bit. We've been in production for six months already, but later this year we'll have another major release and we'll be turning off two legacy systems that have supported my clients' operations for nearly 20 years. I've also been refreshing the content in the Scrum for Microsoft Business Apps course. I moved that course onto a new course platform, Zendler, late last year and thought it would be a good opportunity to update the content. That'll be finished in a few weeks. Thanks to the 1,136 students as of today who have signed up for my introductory course, Agile Foundations for Microsoft Business Apps, since it launched nearly four months ago. It covers the history of Agile software development, its principles and values, the benefits of an Agile approach to implementing business applications, and a quick primer to Scrum. It's free. Did I mention that? It takes about an hour, and it's available at customary.com foundations. Go on, sign up, and let's share your completion certificate on LinkedIn and let your connections know that you've started your Agile journey. In this episode of Scrum Dynamics, I'm interviewing EY Kalman from London in the UK. EY is also known as the CRM Ninja on social media, and he's going to be sharing the story of a successful Microsoft business applications project at Orbis, a mid-size investment advisory firm in the UK. Listen in and enjoy as EY shares the critical success factors from this project. You'll find show notes from the episode at customary.com slash 43. Let's go, EY. Welcome, everybody, to the Scrum Dynamics Show. I'm delighted to have EY Kalman on the show today to talk about a successful project in his career. But first, we're going to get to know EY a little bit with some rapid-fire questions. EY, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks, Neil. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's really great to be with you on this. I've been following you a little while on Twitter and on, on LinkedIn. You've been um, really all over the place on LinkedIn at the moment, really busy engaging with the Power Platform community. So it's great to get to know you a little bit better. It's great to know you as well. You know, we've had some good interactions and look forward to a lot more. So our quick fire questions to help us get to know you a little bit better. The first one is, what did you have for breakfast this morning? So I'll admit today I was actually slightly naughty. I didn't have breakfast. I skipped it because I was taking my kids to school. But when I got back and had to do a couple of things, then I had brunch. So hopefully that sort of counts. Um, 
I do recommend, of course, that people have breakfast. It is very important meal of the day. But I had a, a tuna sandwich with some cheese on the side and a mug of milk. Okay, well, that's pretty healthy. Good. How did you get into CRM? What was your first job and how did you land that job? And what's your current role and how did you land that one as well? My first job, I mean, I was doing IT support and, you know, building systems, doing some troubleshooting in my teens, sort of on the side. But my first official job was working in a CRM company. They were an ISV doing a solution for fuel and oil wholesalers in the UK and Europe. And I knew one of the directors of the company, which is how I knew there was a position available. I went into interview and they said, you know, about CRM. And I went, what's CRM? And they said, you know, about SQL Server. And I went, what's SQL Server? So I managed to get through the interview. And I mean, I was starting off with internal IT support. And then straight after the interview, I went out to my local bookstore and I bought uh, The Idiot's Guide to SQL Server and The Idiot's Guide to CRM, all 800 pages for each one, and then spent the next couple of days really going through so I can know about it. Um, it was really an eye-opener. And I really, you know, got passionate about it over the years because of what CRM which I define as, you know, client relationship management, more as a generic term, can, can do an offer. Mm. And my current job, well, I've been doing internal roles for many years. And at the beginning of this year, I decided to challenge myself and went into official consulting. So I'm a Dynamics 365 and Power Platform consultant and like to call myself a tech evangelist as well. I'm really showing clients what they can do with technology to enable and support them on projects. Oh, great. So is that something you'd recommend, applying for jobs where you've got none of the essential skills and somehow landing it? That's awesome. <laughs> um, I would always recommend in having as many skills as possible. It was for internal IT support, which I had uh, in a CRM company and, and thankfully then got skilled up in the CRM side of things and then took talents. I mean, I was thrown onto client site without knowing that I was going to be thrown onto client site. I was thrown into training without knowing I was going to be doing training. It was um, it was a very interesting environment, some really good people, and I learned a heck of a lot from it. Yeah, good. And lastly, before we get into your successful project, what are you most passionate about outside of work? So I have a couple of hobbies and interests. I like reading. I have a motorbike. So I like going out for rides when the weather's good because this is the UK, this is London, when it can always rain no matter when in the year it is. So I like doing that. I also used to be a skydiver, um, although gave wow. that up for uh, several reasons. Yes. A an interesting statistic for you is that in the UK, if you think there are, what, 70-something million people here, the active skydiving community is 3,500 people. That's people who are active skydivers, not people who are going just for tandem jumps, you know, once or twice in the year. And of those, I did a poll a couple of years back, and of the couple of hundred people I spoke to, over 40% worked in IT-related jobs. So there's an interesting wow. correlation. Yeah, that's amazing. I did a static line jump with the Edinburgh University Parachute Club when I was a student. I don't remember much. It was a bit of a blur, the whole experience. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of the reasons I got into listening to Tom Petty because they played free-falling for about an hour and a half all the way from Edinburgh up to the jump site. That was a, an incredible experience. It's very low. I didn't realize, when I look back today, how low a static line jump is. The, the plane was at 1,300 feet, which is yes. probably a couple of minutes after takeoff. Just jump out on your own and hope the thing rips. So in, in my typical fashion, when I started to learn to skydive, I didn't go for static line. I didn't do a tandem jump. I went straight for what they call AFF, accelerated free forward. So my first jump was at 15,000 feet with two instructors, one on each side of me and, and straight out of the aircraft. 
And you can do that for your first jump? Yeah, you do a day, something called ground school. So it's a full day of training on ground. So you go through all the safety stuff and learn the sort of maneuvers. And then, as I said, you have instructors there next to you. I mean, they're actually holding on to grips on the side of your jumpsuit. But yeah, 15,000 feet, the door slid open. I was like, okay, got check, right? We're going to do this. Went out and incredible far right yeah i didn't realize you, you could do that as a i thought that you know you'd have to do some tandem jumps to to prove you can land and everything correctly before you went to that level it's, no oh, not at all that's no, why no. they call it accelerated <laughs> yeah i guess so great before we go too far into skydiving the purpose of the show is to help our audience have a successful implementation of microsoft dynamics 365 and the power platform We'd love to dive into one of your successful projects, find out more about it, find out your role in it, how the project went, and really just to drill into the critical success factors that you think led to some successful project outcomes. So do you want to tell us, first of all, if you can, um, the name of the, the company and the project and give us some background into the, the successful project? Sure, more than happy to. Um, I mean, it was a company that I worked for in an internal role, so it's there on my LinkedIn. It was called Orbis, still is called Orbis. It's a multinational investment company so they have about 10 offices around the world i think at last count when i last checked my personal investments with them at the beginning of the month there was something like 32 billion dollars of assets under management so really good company sorry i thought you said that was your personal investments for a second yes um, oh, no 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 not, not my personal <laughs> investments being 32 billion i wish um uh, yeah, that, my wife would be very happy with that. Um, no, 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 no. The, the company has in total around $32 billion of assets okay. around the world under management. There are about 350 people working for them globally. It's, uh, it was a really interesting company to work for. And so what, what, what led to them launching a CRM project? So the Orbis mentality has always been, number one, technology and business intertwined. So unlike previous companies I'd worked out or clients I'd gone to, whereby you had the business units and business users sitting, doing their stuff, you know, customer service, and then squirreled away somewhere in a dark room, one thinks, you know, with, with bright screens, was an IT people, programmers, developers, uh, IT support, all the rest of it. They believe very firmly in having IT integrated with the business. So you had developers sitting next to the business users, and developers would feel free to talk to the business users about what they were doing. And the business users would feel free to talk to developers about what they needed. Which meant that that's terrible. Haven't they ever seen the IT crowd? <laughs> You're supposed to keep them in the basement. <laughs> a lot of developers had seen the IT crowd and were big fans of it, but it really meant a sharing of information and that the systems were actually really on point. They really put a lot of resource into it. When I left, about forty percent of the company worked in IT in one way or another. Now, IT is very broad, but leaving aside the general IT support and networking and systems and, and all the infrastructure, there were then multiple teams of programmers for the different products because traditionally they always built their own systems. They developed in-house custom and massively complicated pieces of software for what they needed and because they could tweak it as much as they need and really make it go and, and do what it needed to be. I mean, being a multinational investment company meant they weren't just subject to UK financial regulations. They were subject to multiple jurisdictions that they needed to comply with legal reasons and data storage and the need to really tweak things as they absolutely needed to. So that was where they were coming from. Now, all this is made up of a couple of companies. It's sort of a group. And one of the companies based in Australia, actually, which is called Alan Gray Australia, who you may have heard of. They're quite uh, active in, in a lot of stuff in Australia. 
and the Western Australian markets, they already were using dynamic CRM. They were using 2011, 2011. And, but globally, all the rest of the company was using a bespoke developed, what they called CMS, a client management system, customer management system, which was fully bespoke, fully developed in-house, uh, integrated to a dozen other applications. And it was dated. And part of the problems with it were that different parts of it were developed for different business units. So you had business units, right. you know, who were people who would go and engage with the clients themselves and talk to them about the investments and things, saving data about the clients in one space. You had the customer service people handling customers, you know, stuff coming in, queries and the rest of it, storing data in another mm -hmm. place. There wasn't a single source of truth. Work was duplicated. Reports were really messy to run on the data. And, and it really wasn't very efficient. So the view was taken that they need to do something to upgrade it. And before, I mean, it happened before I started, but they did a review into what they should do. So the first option was they develop in-house and you build another one, build another one, version 2.0 or 3.0, whatever it would be, and, and get everybody on it and really take a view where they could make everything that they needed, but it was utterly bespoke. It would be multiple man years worth of effort. Um, it would be actual multiple years to get the product live and then there's technical debt and we all know what technical debt can be like because people move on and you know the documentation could be great and code can be commented it's still you need to be up to speed and technology moves on the other option was to buy an off-the-shelf product and try and live with it or the third option was to get an off-the-shelf product that they could then build on and customize because they were looking at different CRM solutions. And because mm -hmm. the Australian division, the Australian company, already had experience with CRM and there was a CRM unit already there with CRM developers, they chose to look at the Microsoft solution as one of these options and actually went down the route after evaluating all the different options and seeing what it would go and getting the senior stakeholders involved. Uh, the company was really good with getting stakeholder management and people from the business units actually knew what they were talking about to be involved in these sort of things and to look at it and analyze and assess. And they decided to go with Dynamics because, of course, Microsoft were releasing new versions every couple of years at that point. So they started off working on the Microsoft Dynamics CRM 2013 product. Right. I joined in 2014, early 2014, as a business analyst to sit with the users, provide support as necessary, although nothing was live at all, but you know, gather requirements, build proof of concepts, demo what the tech could be, talk to the developers, put full specs together for the developers work from, test that out, training, and, and all the rest of the stuff around that. So Good. that's really where they were going from. Now, at that point, they were a couple of, a year and a half or so into the project, maybe a little more. And the approach that was taken because of people in different time zones, and meetings and stuff. So we had virtual meetings. We had daily virtual stand-ups, which could range from being five minutes to 50 minutes. Right. Yeah, it was sort of Eastern Hemisphere, Western Hemisphere, and London, uh, which, of course, falls in the Western Hemisphere, but I'm going to call GMT the middle of, of that thing. So multiple times. And so half the year I was on calls in the evening, night time. Half the year I was on calls in the morning, night time, yeah. just to make time sense work out for everyone. But really going through what everybody had done the previous day, were there any blockers, were there any issues, do we need any support from any other teams or anything come up on what we were going to work on? And then again, was there anything that was needed for the day's work? So that was something that I hadn't really been exposed to before and was really very good and obviously fits in with Agile methodology. Now, Agile methodology is, of course, quite 
quick in iterations and stuff. And, you know, Waterfall is, is very long. I wouldn't say that this was a wagile project because, and, and I know some people really don't like the word wagile. I mean, there's a massive amount. They start Googling wagile and stuff. Yeah. But this was agile slowed down because the way that we approached it was this was a massive product and minimum viable product was massive because we had to make sure we were integrating with all the systems we needed integrated with. We needed to make sure we were dealing with all the jurisdiction issues and all the legal requirements that we had to have uh, in terms of where data was stored and, and everything else. So because it was it's such a complicated product in order just for minimum viable product, what we did was we worked out what we needed in order to go live and we broke it out into the different business units. And then once we broke it out and the functionality into different business units, we broke out each piece of functionality into the work that needed to be done. So we would capture the requirements and sitting with the business, going through what they needed, screenshots, we did mock-ups, we did proof of concepts and worked out what they needed and you know, fields, what the type of fields, investigated the existing data and worked out how we need to come across in some ways because things would need to change. Although that wasn't anything to do with the data migration, that was a whole separate project and drop orders of spec work for the developers. The developers would then assign priorities to it, see, work out how much time it would take and estimate, and they would then have a schedule of development that would go on. And once a piece of development would finish, they would then roll on to the next piece of development. But right. that first piece of development, so when they were looking at something, say they were looking at something for customer service, one of the things that customer service need to deal with, so they would develop it. And then we would expose the super users, as we call them, not the stakeholders, so not the people at the top of you know the business you know are running it, but the people who know everything, they would write the book on how the processes and everything would go within the business unit. We would expose yeah. them to it, get them to play around with it, get them to give their immediate feedback and see how it would go and say, you know, I want this screen changed. I want the field there. We would actively tell them to go break it. We'd say the whole system isn't running, of course, and you're probably going to get errors as you click around. But for the functionality here, as per the spec which you've agreed to, which we've worked on, is it working? Is there something now that you see on the screen and as you're going through it that you need to change? And based on their feedback from that, we would then iterate on it and put that then in the backlog and, and do work on it as and when. So okay. that went on for several years uh, as we were knocking over things. And of course, the company didn't stand still. So as is inevitable in these sort of projects, we had to revisit some of the things in terms of from a technology perspective. Yeah. So for instance, as I said, we started on 2013 CRM and 2015. Yeah, coming. Yeah. yeah tw so 2015 was released and we decided we we're going to upgrade to 2015 even before we go live. So because of the benefits that it could bring. So we decided 2015, that's going to be, so we had to upgrade everything and refactor some of the code and, and go through it. And once we got a mostly stable minimum viable product in our UAT environment, we then started exposing more users to it to get more feedback and to get them to break it because we were a very small team. There was the project manager who also was doing business analysis and stuff. He had years of experience in this thing. There were three, maybe four core CRM developers. And there was myself as a business analyst. We were six people, five, six people or so. And I mean, we had some other members of the team who were working on the integration points. They weren't CRM people. They were, they were experts in the other systems that the company used and were working right. on how they're building up the integration points because we built our, our own service bus and our own data warehouse because we build everything, or well, most things. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it was really amazing just seeing the landscape of tech within it and as tech kept changing. And they were also looking at this data migration. I was helping them with the data migration. So we went to the users of the different business units and we said, look, we're going to start training you up on it and we'll provide you training, we'll provide user guides and anything you want to know, ask us so we can make the material better, but break it. Go ahead and actively do things as you wouldn't normally do because two or three people testing it will do it in their own way or try and think a bit out of the box and do it in a slightly different way. If you're throwing 50, 60, 70 users at it, yeah. inevitably, somebody will do something that you're not expecting because, look, as a systems guy, I know, you know, you're a systems guy, you know, you do things, you know how the system works, you do it in that way. People who don't know how the system work don't do it in the same way. So because of that, we found some bugs, which we worked on. We worked on some more efficient processes as we're going along to make the minimum viable product even better. And finally, after two and a half years of being in the company, we went live with the product. So the factors that led to the success of that were things like the daily standups. And sometimes we had twice daily standups, especially in the months before we went live in order to enable that we were going on the right track and everything was being taken care of. We we didn't believe in over-documenting things. We would draw up a list of requirements, understand what it meant and what we needed to do and, and screenshots of the current system and translate those into specifications. We're doing reams of documentation and we were using a very lightweight, agile tool for you for tracking it called Pivotal Tracker. I love Pivotal Tracker. It was my first exposure to it. And, and the reason we came to it was because they were using VSTS on site and yep. it was very overcomplicated for what we needed. We needed something really lightweight whereby we can move mm. things around and you know work on sprints and releases and then backlog and we had something called the icebox where we threw all the ideas into that That's right. people came up with. Yeah, it was it was really very good and I've used it on quite a few projects since. It's, it's also free for uh, the product is free if you only got I think two or three people. So it's very useful for very small projects when you're starting to spin something up. It's got a feature that I've only recently seen in Azure DevOps, which is, I think it's called emergent planning in Pivotal Tracker. Really, you just estimate all of your, your stories in the backlog and then tell it how many days your sprint is and forecast your capacity in each, in each sprint. And then it'll just tell you which stories are going to go in each sprint right throughout the whole backlog. And yeah, I just thought that was a really nice, easy way of planning a project. So that might be something slightly you new. Know, I don't remember seeing it, but also we we didn't want to automatically allocate things. We wanted to be very careful in terms of balancing resource. Because the Australian company was already on CRM, they had to do some support along the way for business as usual and what they required. So it wasn't we were developing the whole time for, for new stuff for the global system. They also had to keep their existing system up and running. So it was balancing the development needs and, and all the things like that. But it was it's a really good tool. Since then, I mean, I've also used DevOps for some stuff and, and seen how it goes, and it was really good. So that was another thing that contributed to the success. The third thing that contributed to the success were stakeholders. Stakeholder management can be very difficult, uh, you know, especially when you start looking external clients and external projects. Your consultant going in somewhere and doing that. Because this was an internal project, this had been signed off on at the highest level. I mean, there were quarterly briefings to the global board on the progress and of how things were going. And everybody knew that they were behind it. And this, you know, from low level up to high level, they were all behind it. And we were very clear that if we needed resource, we would ask very nicely, but otherwise there would be delay to the project. And, and this was, you know, all signed off on. So everybody was actually really, really behind it. Um, even with a couple of users who really weren't very familiar with technology and, and didn't like technology, they've been doing the same thing for a, a long time and they weren't tech people. 
know, their basic mobile phones and stuff. And once they could see the benefits of it, once we started with full proof of concepts and moving on past proof of concepts to, you know, UAT testing and walking them through how it would go and they could see that, they then moved from why are we changing the system when I know what I'm doing the entire time now to yeah. I can see the benefits that it will bring me. And I know there's going to be a bit of pain when we transition and to learn it, but I can see that I'm actually going to save a lot of time in the new system. So the stakeholder management was handled really well and we had tie in and I could go to people in all the, across all the business units I was talking to and say, look, I, can you tell me when's a convenient time to talk to you? I need half an hour time. I need two hours. I need to show you. And, and they will come to me with ideas that they had or as they saw the landscape evolving in the business and come to me with ideas that they wanted to work on either improvements to something we'd already developed and they had signed off and said well okay can we change it a bit because there's actually something better we think we can do which is going to change the business because the technology will enable us better or we have something that we want to go for the future so that was really really good why do you think that level of engagement was there was it a top-down thing that the executive team were saying look we're doing this crm project you've got to give the team your attention whenever they ask for it or was it a bottom-up demand because of some frustration with the existing cms system it was really a combination of the two it wasn't sort of a directive that as soon as a crm team member asks you something you have to drop everything and do it the company didn't work like that at all but it was more We've all signed on for something because we know the existing system is so old and is really not up to what you're doing and is causing you to spend a lot of time to do it. We want to put something in that is more efficient, that will get better, that can scale over the next number of years. And, you know, there was commitment from all levels of the business across all the business units who it would affect. So it was really, really good for that. Again, the business was used to you know, the technology teams, the developers sitting next to them. So it wasn't, we were total strangers. They knew what technology could do. And when we showed them the new stuff, they were really ecstatic. And it was a matter of just working with that and going forward with it. Coming back to that minimum viable product, you had a couple of choices. You could have rolled it out, maybe the sales features, how to attract new clients and you know, meet prospective investors and, and do their needs analysis, those kinds of features. You could have done those first and then customer service or client service later or the other way around. Or you could have gone jurisdiction by jurisdiction or region by region. Did I get this right that you decided to go for a kind of global rollout and um, with everything in it because that's the existing system covered everybody and, and provided all of those features? And so it was a big bang transition from the old system to dynamics? That's a good way to describe it. It was a big bang change. And there were several reasons behind that. Number one, although dealing with different jurisdictions, the customer service people were dealing with people effectively around the clock. It would hand over from country to country. Right. But they would reply to people who were from different jurisdictions. They were trained up in that. They knew how to deal with it. Wow. But because there were a large number of other systems needing to connect into it for pumping data in and, and pulling data out and, and that, if we had done it business unit by business unit, we would have had to keep the data running parallel. And the integration nightmare that that would have occurred, I don't even know how we could have started addressing it because master data management, you know, where is the master of it? Which system is it? The new system? Is it the old system? How do we move things over? How do we think, keep things in sync? How do people know where to go to forward and how they're running that? And do they need to enter things twice possibly? So we worked out what we needed as a minimum viable product. And don't get me wrong, there was a massive number of items we put, you know, on a, in our icebox section and then the backlog that we would need to work on past that once we went live with the first iteration. Right. Um, but we knew that 
because of the vastness of the way that the company worked and the challenges that it faced, it would really need to, you know, have such a big bang. Yeah. So that, that's something I've seen in common, particularly with Dynamics ERP projects where you're replacing an accounting system, that that minimum viable product is really pretty big. You can't just go live with accounts payable and leave accounts receivable on the on the old system. You have to really <laughs> bring everything up to the new system. And then, uh, like you said, there's still a healthy backlog of wish list items that people then want to go forward with, but you have to give them that baseline, which has got to meet the critical functionality that they had on the old system as well. Correct. And some of the ideas that people come and they say, you know, we want to go live with it. And thankfully, because of the good stakeholder management and the good interactions that we have, we say, look, you know, we don't want to delay this more than necessary. Let's go live. Then we can look at the additional features. And for the most part, they were actually okay with it. Sometimes we had to, you know, explain and sit down with them and say, look, you know, this is what it would take as in terms of pushback, in terms of development to get these additional things in. And again, the lines changed slightly over the course of a multi-year project that we had to include a couple of extra things mm -hmm. because of the nature of the business and requirements that came in. But it was really, you know, really good in that. Another thing that we did was in terms of the data migration. Now, the CRM core team wasn't involved as such in the data migration. It was a set of other developers who were sort of seconded to our team for that, who were familiar with all the other systems. And what they did was they built a facade in the middle to translate all the custom schemas and everything else from the databases of the systems in the company into CRM data. So CRM systems would be able to access the data and it would look like CRM systems. And that way we could test all the systems that we need to integrate. You know, we had a very custom reporting tool that would create a report. So we need to look how CRM data would be. How can you test it when you don't have a system to run it against? Yeah. Well, we use that facade for it. And that facade was built up and really iterated on. I mean, when we got, I think, four months, five months out from the go live, we were running daily data migrations overnight, seeing how it would go. We started off with a very small set of the data. We checked that it would come across correctly. We would then blow it away. We would then add a little bit onto it because there was a massive amount of data. I mean, here in the UK, you would usually keep client records for a year or so, especially with GDPR. In the financial industry, you have to keep for seven years. So work on seven years of activities coming across, yeah. you know, thousands of clients and stuff or all that sort of thing. So it was a massive amount of data. Thankfully, systems could handle that on a daily basis. And, and really to build up and iterate on that and see how it goes, see what needed changing and, and build on that. So that was actually really quite agile. And all I can say is thankfully at the Go Live weekend, it worked flawlessly. It's funny, I've often heard challenges about people trying to wrap their head around a concept of taking an agile and iterative approach to data migration. And you absolutely can. You just take it one entity at a time or a subset of the fields or a subset of the records or a subset of the scenarios. And you, you keep iterating and building it up and getting confidence that you get the basics right and then expand it from there. And you'll always find bad data or an unusual schema or a difficult translation that you've got to do. But you can absolutely take an iterative and incremental approach to data migration, just like you can for developing front-end features too. That's very right. And, and as you say, you know, you start off, you know, with a couple of the fields from a single entity, you see how it goes, then you build on that. We've all seen cases where you buy, you know, you've got a hundred custom fields and you're whacking all the data in and it's really not going right and you don't quite know where and how to yeah. touch it. But it's, it, if you can start off, assuming you have the time and the resources to do so, start off with it and build on it, it goes back to agile, you know, full agile methodology. Mm and really can enable you in that. And you can actually save a lot of time if you do that properly. 
And, and did your integration team who were wiring all the systems together, did they take a similar approach and did they have a facade as well? Or were they developing against CRM APIs um, on your development system? So we took the decision, if I recall correctly, that we wouldn't develop directly against the APIs because of change over time. So we built a custom facade for it to sit in the middle. Yep. And part of the reason for that as well was because there were a lot of systems talking to it. If we would you know, build each system to talk directly to it and there was a change, we would need to change it in multiple systems. Whereby if with the facades, all that needed to happen was a change, a single point in the facade would change and then everything would flow through. So for the integration points, both pumping data in and pulling data out, it was going through a facade as well. It's funny, on my current project, we started with a facade as well. It was called Rick's Facade, in honor of the developer who came up with the idea. Um, and when he left, we had to come up with a new name. So it's now called the Customer Abstraction Layer. And it does exactly that. It defends all the systems that we integrate with against schema changes and dynamics, because we, we change that reasonably frequently. Oh, yeah, we don't want to have to change all the systems that we integrate with. So we can just modify the schema once in the CAL, the customer abstraction layer, that helps us maintain a little bit more nimbleness when it comes to maintaining those system integrations. Indeed. Well, we were very original. We called it the CRM facade. <laughs> very good. Very original, of course. I'm interested. How many users were involved in the Orbis uh, CRM deployment? So the solution was rolled out globally, and people who would access the system directly was about a quarter of the company. So you're talking about 80, 90 users or so okay. at the time that I had left across different business units. All right. I'm just trying to balance in my head. It's quite a long project. Two and a half years is not a small project, but it was a relatively small team. You talked about three developers, a project manager, and yourself as a business analyst. That's what, five people? Yeah. Um, was there ever a discussion around, well, let's double the team and have the time of the project? Why do you think that was such a small core team? So... I think there were a couple of things around that. First of all, it wasn't two and a half years, the project, until go live. It was two and a half years when I was in the company. It had already been running for about 18 months beforehand. So it was... Uh, oh, wow, four years. Yeah, about four years. I think part of the decision, although I wasn't involved in it, it was the project manager, who is a great CRM guy as well. Part of the decision taken was that anybody coming in would need to know the company and the way the company worked. And to know the way the company worked would take a while to skill up in. So it wasn't just a matter of throwing resource at it. Right. It was also originally we were aiming to get minimum viable product out in about two, two and a half physical years. So the reason things took longer was we were ready to go live earlier, but there was a decision made to layer because there were some other factors involved and, and critical dates uh, that the company needed to do other things on, you know, annual reporting, quarterly yep. reporting, things like that. So uh, we needed to wait and we needed to have the resource available. And because we had some delays along the way because of refactoring technology or we came up with some bugs that really needed time and to think about ways to deal with it, we needed then the business units to commit to time for it. So it was really a balance of that, I think. You know, looking back on it, I can't think of anything specific that additional resource would have necessarily been able to bring specifically because, again, they would have needed to skill up in the different systems that the company was using. I mean, the developers were, CRM development team were, you know, working full out and were really good at their do. Uh, the head developer is one of two people I would describe as being a guru level in terms of uh, dynamics uh, development. Really, really think, I mean, we were doing stuff uh, for testing purposes outside the SDK and then working out how we could do stuff within the SDK to sort of replicate that, but really pushing the boundaries of it. And he's the second person I've come across, the first 
one I've come across who I would call sort of, you know, guru level was actually in the first company I worked for. So, you know, they were really doing things well. And it was just a matter, again, it was things like data migration, making sure that everything was ready and everything was ready to go. And, and that was being handled by other people as well. Yeah. So projects of this size, this scope, this scale tend to overrun somewhat in my experience. And I think in a lot of people's experience and, you know, for what we did, I think it was really good. Um, I mean, to give an example, I worked on a component Postgo Live, which they wanted to put in and it was legacy. It had been around for a decade. It was, uh, it was an end, it was effectively a rules processing engine, which was synchronous. So when you would put a value in, it would then go off and evaluate and people could go away and make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, come back. It was still processing. It was, it was that slow and that long. And we did a mini project to upgrade the component. We put the front end into dynamics. We put the back end into a new custom processing engine. Nowadays, we could probably have used Power Automate, mm -hmm. uh, but then that wasn't around then. And, and again, things were also on-premise cloud they were just moving into and they didn't want to put dynamics in the cloud again for regulatory reasons so I had to deal with some limitations around you know some of the new features that were available in cloud and that weren't available on-prem but we did two two and a half years or man years of development in five months to get this new component out five six months yep. and we had to delay slightly the release of it we were supposed to release it at month seven we released at month nine because again of you know, other business uh, concerns and commitments. But it was us, you know, we were really committed to that. And again, it was about knowing and stuff. So, you know, they were really, really good. Again, in my experience, it's not about how many lines of code you can write, but the quality of the code. Yeah. I'm interested in the development team that you had. Were you using the, the team in Australia who already had experience with Dynamics CRM? Or did you have developers across the world who were who knew the company, who knew Orbis's systems and processes and culture, and were they learning dynamics as they went along, or what was the blend of skills and experience? So the core CRM team, who already had dynamics knowledge, were the core CRM developers, and they continued, and they were the ones who did the product. The other developers who came in to do things like the data migration and build the integration points and the rest of that learned somewhat of the dynamics space, but they weren't sort of core developers. I mean, one of them... We were having a problem with the Outlook plugin, uh, which was quite clunky and, and caused some issues. And one of them actually investigated and built a custom Outlook add-in wow. for us, which was very lightweight and did what we wanted. And yeah, but he got to know the product so well and investigate how Outlook worked and how the data into CRM and the different plugins and the SDK around it. So they definitely picked it up and would work on stuff, but we kept that core team because they had the knowledge of dynamics, they had the knowledge of the company and the systems, and they continued with that. And I was going to ask you about iterations. So in when we practice Scrum, we've got iterations called sprints. Those are normally a week to a month long. Um, it sounds like you weren't really using sprints as such. You had uh, features that you were developing, and whenever that feature was ready enough for the users to begin testing it, you invited the users to come in and start testing it. Rather than a fixed time frame, you were releasing an, an increment whenever a feature was finished. Is, did I get that right? So you got that right, and that was for initial release. That's how we worked. Once we had gone live, we then moved much more into a Scrum methodology, okay. whereby, again, we didn't have necessarily daily stand-ups at that point because we didn't need it because the developers were all sitting together and I didn't need to be on the call every day or the, you know, exchanging emails and stuff. But we moved on to a thing of we released every four to six weeks functionality and the work was broken up into chunks and, you know, even 
for additional parts of the system, we will break that up and say, we can get this part now. And in the next sprint, you can get the next part rather than we're going to just expand the sprint in order to fit you all in and release everything that you want. So we got people used to the concept of regular releases. Now, didn't always go according to plan. You know, if something came up, if there was something needed to be fixed or something yeah. needed much more effort, but we kept to those quite well. And, you know, a briefing would go out to say, you know, this is what we are aiming to release this month and you know what is going to be released and to the different business units so they knew and they could see their items on the task list so they knew what was being worked on and they could put comments in if they wanted on that as well okay it's interesting one of the challenges i face with particularly with executives on an agile project is that their experience in the past has been that phase one of a traditional project always overruns it overruns its budget it overruns its timeline and the the mythical phase two gets cancelled. So they, they shove as many features as they can into phase one because they don't believe that there ever is going to be a phase two. With an agile approach, you try and take them this iterative and incremental journey. Sometimes that initial release does take a long time. Other times it can be quite fast. But eventually they will get all their favorite features delivered if they can stick with us, continue to make an investment over time, and then we'll make continuous improvements over time as well. It sounds like you were taking that journey did your executive team and your and your stakeholders believe you that there was going to be continual improvement after that initial release? So that's part of what we promised them. When we were going into it, and part of the reason for choosing Microsoft Dynamics was the product itself would be updated by Microsoft. So there will be general improvements as Microsoft got things better and new features rather than needing to develop them in-house. And we showed them the roadmap that had been done previously up to the point of that and the future roadmap that they mm -hmm. were, you know, Microsoft was suggesting at that point. So they could actually see you know, some of the things that had actually occurred. It wasn't just us talking to them, but they could see, you know, what had actually happened. And we said to them, look, you know, if you want to shove everything into the first release, it's never going to happen. You need to give us the space to do it. You need to let us work on it and get something out there as your first footfall and then let's work on that and iterate on that and we can talk about you know some of the things you want to do and work on and we can start getting some of the specifications for that if you really want to but we have a bit of free time you know we're doing user training and stuff like that and we can put those in the backlog but we're not going to work on those and the project manager was fantastic in managing that and you know and pushing back and so I, I was doing it as well to a point but effectively his say was final right and he was supported by the global board for that and occasionally we had surround people said look it's a great concept but it's not going to be in the release and sometimes we even had to do that once we went live with the initial product you know in those sprints we say look we can't release to you this month or next month because we have these higher priority things to do because we had to balance the needs of different business units and different countries which was somewhat of a juggling act so it was a matter of explaining to people why not just saying no it's not going to be done for six months but explaining why and because it was internal and we you know we're sitting next to each other and we know everybody we've got great communication that generally went down without a problem we would turn around to them and say look if what you're saying is such a great need then you need to as the business users and the business unit push this up the chain of command and make your case for having development resource available earlier on. And there were one or two occasions where they went ahead and made the business case internally for it. And we then got word that, you know, okay, we should stop work on something else that we had planned to do. And we should put something in else instead. So I just wanted to sum up EY. So the, the CRM deployment at Orbis, you think was a raging success. Part of that, you, you mentioned three critical factors. I'm going to summarize these. The first one you mentioned, daily standups, but it was a 
more than that. It was the communication between a, a tight-knit team of developers who had a lot of experience of the company's culture and processes and systems and some decent pre-existing dynamics uh, CRM development experience. You mentioned your lightweight approach to documentation using Pivotal Tracker as an agile kind of backlog management tool. And the third one was the stakeholder engagement, both uh, with your leadership team who supported you in this multi-year, multi-jurisdiction project. But also it sounds like you had a lot of stakeholder engagement from your users as well, uh, kind of bottom-up uh, buy-in as well. People excited about adopting a new system and getting away from a legacy system that was a couple of years old and out of date and no longer met their needs. But those are the three main takeaways that I've got. Yeah, absolutely correct. Uh, have I missed anything else? Any other critical success factors that you, that you wanted to mention? No, I, I think that broadly covers it. What I would say about, you know, when you're engaging with people in the project, especially the business people, whether you're doing that internally or you're going into somebody as a consultant and doing it, it's not just about the technology. What I found is it's important to have a human touch, human approach to it. So if you take a look at somebody's desk, maybe you see something relating to a hobby they have. And if you can talk about it and you take it out of the realms of this is what you're paying me to do or this is what you're not doing in terms of technology and you can connect with them on a more personal level, they don't fear you and fear the changes as such because they think, oh, he's a great guy. You know, yeah. he plays golf, I play golf, you know, to use a very uh, somewhat dated analogy possibly. But, you know, okay, I don't know what's coming, but I can talk to him about stuff other than what I'm actually doing. and. You know, having that sort of communication, as I've seen time and time again, has really been the success factor in it. You know, don't be afraid to talk to people about other stuff and, and hobbies and things. Yeah, good. Excellent. Well, listen, I really appreciate you sharing with us the uh, the, the project from Orbis. Um, I'm sure the Scrum Dynamics audience will really lap it up. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, and we'll see you back on the show soon, I hope. Well, I'm going to appear on your show. That's the, that's the plan. We're going to talk about, oh, I think you're going to have me embarrass myself with a failed project or a, a, an embarrassing failure? Is that the plan? No, no, not, not at all. My show, The Oops Factor, is basically about learning from our mistakes. And I've had some really interesting ones. And it doesn't just need to be about technology. You know, you hit the switch for the production server and it went off. Um, I've had some really interesting stories from people outside of technology. But yeah, it would it would be great, you know, to have you on the show. And I look forward, hopefully, to coming back and, and talking about some other stuff. Okay. Great. And if people wanted to find out um, or watch some of the episodes of the Oops Factor and follow you on social media, how, how do they best do that? If people want to connect, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, and have a blog on my LinkedIn. It's EY Kalman. I use the Nomica online of the CRM Ninja. My LinkedIn thing is actually, my profile name is the CRM Ninja. My Twitter account is the CRM Ninja. And my website blog is the CRM.ninja. Okay, awesome. Well, people I'm sure will reach out to connect with you there. Thanks very much for appearing on the Scrum Dynamics podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with EY Kalman, the CRM Ninja. You'll find links to his social media profiles in the show notes at customary.com slash 43. If you'd like to join me on the Scrum Dynamics podcast to share your experience from a successful Dynamics 365 Power Apps or Power BI project, then hit me up on LinkedIn. Or send me a message if you know someone that you think should join me on the show. We all rise by sharing our success with others. I'll see you soon on the next episode of Scrum Dynamics. In the meantime, stay agile and keep sprinting. Bye for now.